on May 15, 1940, McDonald's brothers opened their first restaurant in San Bernardino, California. No one was expecting the revolution that was about to begin. For many, many years later on, they tried to make the process of serving food identical, no matter what. And so identical that no matter where you go in the world, that you, whenever you enter McDonald's restaurant, you know what you're going to get. Even if you want to have this burger with, without onions or with no cheese, or whatever, you still are going to get almost identical kind of food. And this was the idea. Everywhere you go, you should be able to, to be served the same in the same way so that the risk of surprise is eliminated. Even in today, if you go to another restaurant of McDonald's, you will not have a right, wide variety of choices. You basically know what you're going to get if you have been there once or twice. But as much as it's easy to make the procedures in one restaurant, restaurant almost identical anywhere in the world, it is impossible to do the same thing with people. Even in the same restaurants, though they wear the same uniforms and they almost say the same things, they ask the same questions, they serve the same food, even then they're different from each other. To the point that I would even guess that if you had three restaurants, three McDonald's restaurants next to each other, and you would go to each one of them very quickly, you would decide that I would prefer to go to this one and not that one, not because of the food you're going to get, not because of the procedure that's going to be identical, but because of the people. And it's much easier to make the procedures identical than people, because people are different. You can have them wear the same clothes, give them the same tools, but they will always stay different in their reactions, in their emotions, in the background they're carrying, and the, the, the background that they're carrying with themselves. This is why it's so difficult to make a great team out of a group of even talented people. It's very difficult to make a great team. In sports, you can see this very well. You can see this in, I see this more often in soccer, or let's call it football, the way it should be called, but it's food. <clears throat> but I can see this in sports. You can have a group of talented guys who play great, and each one of them is an unbelievable player, but together they just don't make a team. And every time in the Champions League, they just fall off because they cannot make it through a certain level. Each one of them is a combination of feelings, passions, experiences that have shaped us and our ambitions, our goals for which we live. And it's true in our groups of friends. It's true in the workplace. It's true in our families. And it's also very true in the church. Last week, Jay from the Mustard Seed Organization talked about gospeling the cities and how sharing the good news should bring about a group of followers of Jesus. And when there's a number of followers of Jesus, they make the local community of believers called the church. But when you take a closer look, you start realizing that it's difficult to actually be the church that God wants us to be. And we all experience that, no matter what country we're in. In Poland, evangelical Christians make 0.1% of the population. 
In the US, it's about 50% of the population. In Poland, there are cities like Tomaszów, the city where we planted our first church. It's a city of the size of Stillwater, Oklahoma. And when we came to the city, there was hardly any gospel presence. 15 believers gathering in one Pentecostal preaching point. That's it. Our church is the first church plant in that city. And there's no other church, evangelical church there. In America, in a city like Stillwater, you can probably have a church at every corner. And even in the least churched areas of the United States, you can still get to the church within the 10, 15 minutes. In Poland, the average church is about 35, 50 people, and the largest church in Warsaw is 600 to 700 people on a Sunday. Sunnybrook itself is about 12 to 1300 people. This is why we appreciate so much you coming alongside of prayer ministries and sharing Mac and Olivia, sharing your resources, sharing your people coming to help us plant another church in another city close by to Tomaszów. Because we need churches. We need more and more evangelical churches in our country that is very religious, but it's very far from God. You'll think that churches in these two different countries, like Poland and America, should be facing different problems. And surely they do. But no matter how big or small the church is in every culture, it struggles with the same issue. And the issue is this. How to stay together when we are all so different? Apostle, knew, Apostle Paul knew it well. And when in the first three chapters of his letter to the believers in Ephesus, he described the richness of God's plan of salvation, helping them understand that God reconciled them with himself in Christ Jesus and destroyed the wall separating people from each other. And that just like the Jews, they, them pagans have become, as he said, fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. He knew that is a great theological concept, but it's much more, much more difficult to practice it than to preach it. It's much more difficult to live it out in a community of believers where people are just so different from each other than to read about it and to teach it. It truly meant at that time that people who used to be so far away from each other, mentally, culturally, spiritually, all of a sudden, they were supposed to become close to each other, creating community of believers that should become the picture of that truth of God reconciling the world to himself. They, as a group of believers, they were supposed to become the picture of the truth to the world. And there was no other way to reach the world but by the local community of believers that should reflect the picture to the world. So no matter where you came from, who you were, a pagan or a Jew, rich or poor, man or a woman, master or slave, extrovert or introvert, everyone should find his or her place in such a community of believers. But how to do it when we are so, so different from each other? It's not enough, it's not enough to make the procedures identical for everybody. It's not to say we will behave certain ways and these, these ways will be identical for everybody. It's not enough to dress the same. It's not enough to speak the same language. Everyone can do that. 
Yesterday, we were with our friends, with Trisha and Steve Carpenters. We were to an OSU game. And, you know, I was there. I was dressed in, in orange. And I quickly learned this. And that. And that. Woohoo! Go Cowboys. So, after five minutes of being at the game, I felt like I've been from here. Like I've been cheering for this team for all my life. It's easy to learn different tricks and stuff and to become very quickly part of a larger community. But it's, the church is not a game. In fact, this idea to be the church for when different people come together was supposed to cross borders that no matter if you are in Poland or the United States, you should experience the same sense of community. But how to do it? And Paul knew that Better together approach was far more difficult to practice than to teach. So after these three chapters of the letter to Ephesians, of deep theology, he goes into practice. And he's trying to show us what we should do, how to create a community that will be a reflection of truths. He spoke before. He said this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting that Paul writing about unity doesn't just start with identical ways of doing things, but acknowledges the differences between people and he draws our attention to the way we should treat each other understanding how different we are from each other therefore he writes with all humility and gentleness with patience bear with one another in love and maybe if you're like me you probably would say Really, Paul? Bear with one another? Just it? Like, shouldn't the Christian community be more than that? You, you tell us we should bear with one another in love. Okay. But still, just like, shouldn't it be more than that? Bearing with one another, it just seems so, so little. Like, you, like I, I can stand you for a couple of hours, but I don't have to be your friend is that what Paul is talking about? Even in love? Well, as it turns out, even that is not always easy. Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem is a great but infamous example of this. It seems that nothing really in the world should unite Christians more than a place that is most likely, or at least is one of the places that are most likely a place built upon the place of death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the keys to this church has a Muslim couple because six different denominations of Christians were not able to agree upon who should manage the place, who should open it, and who should be closing it. And, is that, and if that wasn't enough, a few years ago there was a real fight on the roof of the, of the church, building of the roof of the church, between Coptic and Ethiopian monks because one of them decided, and it's, I know it sounds silly, but one of them decided to 
to move the chair to the shade. And as it turned out, the shade would fall right in the place that belonged to the other group of monks. And so harsh, this way harsh words turned into harsh moves and harsh or hard moves into violent fight with throwing chairs and metal objects right upon the place where most likely our Lord Jesus Christ died and was buried. 11 monks got injured, one had a concussion, and another one had his arm broken. But the truth is, we don't really have to go to Jerusalem to experience tensions among believers. Therefore, Paul is not naive. He looks at the real people with real passions, real emotions, and with real backgrounds. And he looks at them and says, I know, I know you will not be able to live in humility and gentleness in one community if you don't patiently bear with one another in love. And in love, that means not just bear with one another and gossip beyond, behind somebody's back. Not just bear with one another and make fun of each other where we don't see each other. But to live in a community despite the fact that we are so, so different. And the church is the only place like this in the whole world, or should be. The only place like this where our political choices, our worship preferences, our theological preferences, not the main, not the main truths of the scripture, but some of our preferences should not be a reason to break away, to break the relationships and look for another church that will meet our needs and satisfy our egos. And that's a problem in America, it's a problem in Poland, no matter how big or how small that the, the community of believers is, it really takes that song or that gathering or that one teaching to divide the church to split the church in half, to say, no, 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 I understand it differently. I'm going to go and plant another church. This is, by the way, a church planting method in some of the places in Poland. Because somebody has a different idea. I'm just going to go and plant another church. Really? Instead, we should approach each other with humility and gentleness, patiently bearing with one another. In love, that means to look for what is good for you and not necessarily for what is good for me, if each one of us had this attitude towards each other, where we'd come together looking for the good of each other, and it's not really about me, but it's truly about you. How can I serve you? How this can be of a help to you, not to me, to you? All of a sudden, our mindset would change. And we would realize that bearing with one another in love, in humility, in patience, well, it changes us. It makes us different people. And because we are so different from each other, building unity does not come easily. It's a real effort. And that's why Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means you must work on it. You must truly work on it because it's not natural for people to look for the benefit of other people. It is completely natural to look for the benefit for us. What's there for me? What's there for me? What can I get out of this? But Paul says, no, 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 you need to 
be eager to maintain the unity, you need to work on it. And this is one side of it. But on the other hand, on the other hand, Paul makes it clear that it should not be unity at all cost, that it has a common point of reference. Be in unity doesn't mean to be in unity with everybody, who even doesn't mean to be in unity with everybody. But he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A while back, a while back at the meeting of the American Psychological Association, psychologists Jack Lipton and R. Scott Bullion presented a study where they surveyed members of 11 major symphony orchestras and asked how each section perceived each other. Well, the percussionists were viewed, careful, as unintelligent but fun-loving, while the string players were seen as arrogant and stuffy. The brass players were described as loud, of course, by many, and woodwinds, were viewed as quiet, meticulous, and a bit egoistical. So with such different perceptions of one another, how were the orchestras able to make such wonderful music? Well, quite simply, when they were able to put their preferences aside, preferences aside and look first, to the leadership of the conductor, then when they all did that, they could make beautiful music together as one orchestra. And the unity of Christian community is not built around human preferences, but around God and His Word. We may differ on many topics, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't do us any good if we say, I think differently about it, so I'm going to go and find another church. No, 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 no. It's not about yours or my preferences. The question is, can we get around the Word of God and figure it out and try to see what He has to say about this? One God, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one faith. This is, this is our hope. And if our unity is built around the same theological truths, then God helps us patiently bear with one another in our diversity. Because although we're so different from each other, God calls us to strive for unity. So with humility and gentleness, let us patiently bear with one another in love. And only then, when our diversity is submitted to building unity, it becomes the real asset, not an obstacle. That's why, why Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us, not some of us, but each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It turns out that unity does not mean uniformity. Not only that no one expects us to be the same, but God himself emphasizes our diversity but give, by giving different gifts to each one of us. But these gifts, they're not supposed to be building us, but each one of us has been given a gift to build another, to build another person, so that we could build each other up in maturing towards Christ. Christ is the one who gives us gifts according to his measure. And that means that a gift cannot be taught. It is received. It is something you may strive for, but eventually God is the one who gives you a gift. A talent can be developed, but a gift can only be received. A talent is a human ability to do something even very well. A gift is God's work through us, something we cannot generate out of ourselves. For example, you can be a great, talented speaker and not have a gift of an evangelist. That means God's working through you to communicate the good news. You can be a great, talented therapist, seeing many people, but you may not have a gift of counseling, of shepherding, that means God's working through you by taking care of people in a very unique way. You can be a great, talented theologian and not have a gift of teaching. God's working through you by explaining the truths of God's work, word. You can, have, you can be a great, talented cook and not have a gift of hospitality. You can control the reality around you, but not have a gift of faith. But the gifts themselves are not the most important, but the goal for which we've received them, as I said, not to build ourselves up, but to build up others, to equip the saints, the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means that each one of us has been gifted by God to help others become more mature in our relationship with Christ. And please, please, do not think that your gift is too small or not important for others. Sir Michael Costa was a great conductor of the 19th century. And he was having a rehearsal with a great number of singers and musicians. And when the mighty chorus peeled forth with the strains of the organ, the beating of drums, and the clashing of cymbals, one man who played the piccolo, which is a small kind of flute with very high notes, he thought he was not needed and ceased to play. And the conductor, because he was a really good conductor, he suddenly stopped, threw up his hands, and when all was quiet, he cried, 
Where's the piccolo? Where is the piccolo? And maybe sometimes we feel as if in the big church orchestra we play the piccolo that no one would notice. But it's not true. Our great conductor needs each and every one of us so that his masterpiece would sound in the most beautiful way. And no matter if you sing on the stage or prepare communion in the back, preach a sermon or clean up when no one can see you, if you lead big ministries or serve God in the least spectacular way, no matter what your gift is, even if you feel like you're a piccolo, to be honest, in the work of God, each one of us is a piccolo. It's just a small little piece of what he's trying to accomplish through us. But no matter where you serve God and his people through your gifts, you are helping them on their way to maturity in Christ. Because some people who are here on the stage need to be reminded when they see you cleaning up the, the church that really what they do here depends so much on the people who are doing that kind of job. And people who are cleaning up and may think like, oh, I'm doing this job, nobody would notice, nobody cares. They need to hear a message from that stage to be built up and understand, yes, there are people who can actually lead me in understanding and helping me to grow in maturity in Christ. We both need each other. We truly do. So although we're so differently gifted, God calls us to build up his church. So let us serve one another, helping each other mature in Christ. Let's do that. And when we realize how our diversity helps us build up unity through maturing together in Christ, all of a sudden we discover the goal to which we all have been called. So that we may no longer be children, says Paul, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, not by some joints, but by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it turns out that the ultimate goal of our efforts to build up our unity is not unity in itself, and it's not unity at all costs, and it's not unity with everybody that is out there, no matter what they say and no matter what they do. But the ultimate goal of our diversity is not just serving one another. Any organization can do this. Any organization can do this. But what makes the church a unique place to be is something that none, no other organization can do in the whole world. And that is a place where we can help each other to become more like Christ. Because we're so different, because we come together, and because by the love of God, he reconciled us to himself and us with each other. And that means 
become more like Christ, that also means that we are not, not naive children and follow every shiny but false doctrine that comes our way, every new fleshy teaching that we hear. But by speaking the truth in love, we should mature and become more and more like Jesus who saved us and brought us all back to life, something we could not do by ourselves. And this is why sometimes at our church, at our discipleship groups or live groups, as you call them here, we say things that would be easier to avoid. But we can't. Because we may be hurting somebody who is heading in the wrong direction in his life or her life. This is why sometimes in our counseling, we get to say some unpopular things. Because if we don't say them, we may be hurting people and we will not be definitely helping them mature, helping them become more like Christ. And sometimes we need to say that we care more for somebody's becoming more like Jesus than we care about somebody's happiness. This is why we confront each other in love when we see that somebody's habits may destroy his or her life. Because we care for each other. And we do not want to let it go only because somebody would stop liking you. Become more like Christ means to be able to express the truth in love because they both existed in Jesus. Jesus was always willing to love the sinner but to confront the sin. And as these two things were in Jesus, they should also be in us. Truth without love is a deadly weapon, may kill anybody. Love without truth is a cheap sentiment, doesn't help. But truth in love can turn a man around and give him hope of a new life. And this is why in the body of Christ, everybody is called to become more like Jesus and help others become more like Jesus. And that is the ultimate goal of the church, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, not just members of a local church. And we should not overlook people who are new to this. I can imagine that in, our in a church of that size, it may be very easy to kind of hide and go through the motions without getting involved, especially when you first come here. But believe me, it's not only a difficulty of a larger church. It happens the same thing in a smaller church environment. But we are all here to help each other grow in maturity. Those of us who are new, help older Christians grow by asking them for help in our first steps of following Jesus. And those of us who are older Christians, they need, we need this challenge of discipling new believers so that we never forget that the church is not about us. And that's what happened with another Paul, who's a friend of mine from our church. As a church, we do an after-school program. And to this program, kids come from vulnerable families, uh, broken families that cannot help themselves. And we help these kids mainly with school, with homework. But we also try to inspire them to a different lifestyle. And as these two kids were coming to, 
our, our uh, after-school program, their mom came and just started asking questions. And we told her about, well, there's this thing for guys that we do, a, a kayaking trip in the freezing cold month. And we take the guys to the extreme, so, because they love extreme, of course. So we take the guys on this extreme trip, and they go and they kayak together, and, and they have conversations. And, and after that, something changes. They're willing to open up more and more to, to, the, to, to what God has to tell them about their lives. And, 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 and she told her husband to go, and she signed him up, actually, and he didn't have a choice. So he did go. But when he went, we found out he's an alcoholic. He could not live a, lot, a day without drinking. His first two days at the kayaking trip were the first two sober days he had in a long time. And as he kept coming to the church, he kept coming. Um, some of the older guys, they kind of took him by the side and started walking with him and explaining to him what, what he needs to do next. And, and he wanted to become Christ's follower so much, but he couldn't break away from his habit. And, you know, it would have been so easy to say, to say Paul, I mean, Pavel, you can, it's fine. If you love Jesus, it's fine. It's okay. But we knew it's not okay. And somebody has to, had to tell him, Paul, Pavel, <laughs> you can't do that. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your family. You're hurting your children. You're hurting your wife. You can't do that. You cannot live like this. And if you don't stop, it's going to destroy you. And one day he came, he got baptized, and the next day he went for a rehab center for six months. Oh boy, that was difficult. For him and for the family, being apart for six months with really difficult conditions. But the church wrapped their arms around this lady and her children. And we all walked with them through this moment of life. And after six months, Pavel came back, a changed man. He came back as a changed man, but he needed to hear the truth in love. And today, Pavel is doing kayaking trips and taking some of his drunk, drinking friends from the past, coming alongside of them and, and, and taking them on these trips and saying, hey, you know what? If you don't stop, it's going to destroy you and your life and the life of your family and the life of your kids. You have to stop, but I love you and I will walk an extra mile with you. Because I love you too much to, to keep you in this place. That's what the church is all about. Pavel never stopped to grow in maturity in Christ only because his bad years are behind him. He still helps others. And this is a way for him to, become, to feel like he is helping others mature in Jesus. That's why we need that. Because although we're so different from each other, God calls us to become more like Christ. So... Let us help each other by speaking the truth in love. Charles Plum was a U.S. Naval Academy graduate. And he was a jet, fire, jet fighter pilot in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. And Plum ejected and parachuted into enemy hands. He was captured and spent six years in a communist prison. He survived and now lectures about lessons learned from that experience. And one day, Mr. Plum and his wife, they were sitting in a restaurant eating dinner. And one man 
at another table, sitting at another table, came up to him and said, you're Plum. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier called Kitty Hawk. You were shut down. And Plum looked at him and said, how in the world did you know that? He said, I packed your parachute. The man pumped his head and said, I guess it worked. And Plum said, oh, sure it did. If your shoot had not worked, I wouldn't be here today. And Plum said he could not sleep that night because he was trying to go back in his memories. He thought, how many times I must have met this man on the, carry, on, the, on the aircraft carrier. How many times I must have passed by him and maybe not even say hello. Maybe not even say, how are you doing? How many times I was passing by him and I didn't even know that when I was having fun with my guys up on the, on the, on the ship, down there, there was a man in the bowels of the ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the scales, silks of each shoot, holding in his hands each time the fate of someone he didn't know. And now, Plum asks his audience, who's packing your parachute? Who's packing your parachute? Do you know? Who got your back? And it's exactly the same kind of question we should ask ourselves today. Who's packing your parachute? And whose parachute are you packing? This is why we need a community of believers called the church. Because no one is a lonely island, as John Donne said, and no one was created to live in separation from others. Just like no one was called to live an individual Christian life. We are all better together in Christ, even though we're so different from each other. So although we're so different from each other, God calls us together to become more like Christ. So do, you, do what you can to build unity and use your gifts to help others mature in Christ Jesus.